I'm sorry about the money. I had no idea. Oh, that's okay. It's, it's not going to be so easy to get along without it in this world. Uh, I guess I have to get a job. <laughs> that's not going to be so easy either. Right now, the whole country's out of work. Well, then we'll live on love. We'll have to make some concessions, but so what? We'll have each other. That's movie talk. You look so beautiful in this light. But you're not real. Is that real enough for you? You, you kiss perfectly. It's what I dreamed kissing would be like. Come away with me to Cairo. Cairo? We'll live in the desert. It, oh, the blue-gold light of sunset falling over your hair. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm a little tipsy I, from the champagne. Where's the fade out? What? Oh, it's when the kissing gets hot and heavy. Just before the, the lovemaking, there's a, there's a fade out. Then what? Then... Then we're making love in some private, perfect place. <laughs> That's not how it happens here. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. We start a new trilogy today. The first film on our slate is the 1985 Woody Allen flick, The Purple Rose of Cairo. I had never seen this film before, and after I got done seeing it, well, I mean, like, I'd say even 30 minutes into it, I was extremely pleased because it brought me right back to Midnight in Paris, that wonderful... Uh, supernatural idiosyncrasy that only Woody Allen can kind of produce on screen. And I don't think I've seen too many of his films that venture into the supernatural at all. Had you seen this film before? I had not. I was aware of, I guess the, uh, I mean, it's the premise of the film, but I was aware of the key reveal uh, where it does enter into magical realism, which apparently if Woody Allen is going to be covered on uh, this podcast, you know, we're... <laughs> We're going to be the one of the few remaining movie podcasts that even touch uh, his legacy. Uh, <laughs> right. A vast library of, of films from him. Uh, apparently, we just dig that uh, particular subgenre of his work. So uh, I threw it out there um, to bring a little lightness and sort of romance uh, to this month because that's, you know, we're kind of gearing that way, February, Valentine's Day, although when people follow along this month, they're going to see that it kind of veers off course just a little bit. But I hope they like the theme that we settled on. Um, so, no, I just was aware of the hook, uh, but never got around to it. And I think that part of um, part of uh, Alan's filmography sometimes works against him, where you know, maybe you, you hit on a few key examples and you think, okay, I've, I've got a pretty good idea of what this guy's uh, about on screen. And I don't think this one is going to be 
too much different. If you've not been a fan of his stuff before, I can't imagine this would be the one to sell you on it. But I had a good time with it, and I had a feeling, even sight unseen, that it would be something that you would really like. So I hope that uh, turned out to be true. What, what did you make of your first experience with Purple Rose of Cairo? Really, really good. In fact, like my expectation after the reveal, because I had no idea what this film was really about... And once it was revealed that, oh my goodness, like this character on screen is going to enter the real world, I immediately put it at the level of a midnight in Paris, but then was sucker punched at the end, like just a giant gut punch. Because Mia Farrow is, she's one of the most like lovable people, I think, in, in film history. She just is. She exudes that, um, like like a female Jimmy Stewart. If she was ever in a movie with Jimmy Stewart that I don't know about, like it might be the sweetest movie ever. <laughs> Can I just um, touch on that? Because I, yeah. I, I know that our selection of Woody Allen, yet again, may be somewhat controversial. So if you want us to, if you want to hear us sort of touch on that, you kind of opened our Midnight in Paris episode with, with that sort of talk before we, I just zoomed right past it and got to the movie because I adore that movie so much. Uh, but I have also, and this is probably part of the reason I never got around to Purple Rose of Cairo, is while the two, uh, before they, they had a very, you know, uh, traumatic and personal falling out, um, had a long professional uh, career together. And so I've definitely seen her uh, in uh, some of uh, his films. There's uh, one called Another Woman that I really like, where she plays a secondary uh, character, maybe the second lead. But I'm a little bit hesitant to talk too much shit about Mia Farrow on a movie podcast promoting Woody Allen. <laughs> but I think I've had the opposite reaction with her where she's never been someone that when I see she's in the cast list, I'm like, oh boy, Mia Farrow. And much like Woody Allen, maybe the accusation could be lobbed that he has a particular tone, a particular uh, beat that he hits over and over. And he puts it in different little subgenres. Mia Farrow seems to exemplify uh, female fragility, like either a character that is uh, on the cusp of some sort of breakdown or um, a woman of desire that it seems like men want to protect. They want to, to bring closer and there, there's something they, they really find uh, kind and decent about her. And I think that can work for some, but for me, it's, it's always been a delicate balance as far as how she's presented, especially by uh, through the male lens, as far as what they, it's, it seems like they're trying to take advantage of her. And she usually plays a character that's being taken advantage of going back to Rosemary's baby. So I, yeah, I, I'm sort of up near and, but all that being said, I watched this film and I think especially that the, the final moments uh, as a, as an all timer, great scene, the way she, she plays it. So all my complaints aside, I'm just saying I was wrong by the end of it, but that those are my presumptions coming into a, a Mia Farrow joint as it were. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Actually, if she's up on the marquee, I'm not immediately, you know, plunk my money down. Like that, that's not where my mindset is. But once I get into a film and, and she's one of the leads, I immediately find myself very, very drawn to her. Kind of like Audrey Hepburn. Like, I am I think Audrey Hepburn is fascinating, wonderful actress, really beautiful, but somebody who I hold as someone to protect in that fragile state. Uh, she's very much like... And that's why, well, that's why Rosemary's Baby was so shocking to me, because <laughs> the whole time, like, oh my God, she's going mad or whatever, and then the end, she's like, no, no, she's actually given birth to, you know, the devil... Or the devil's baby. 
Spoiler web. Jeez, it's not part of our continuity yet. <laughs> what is the time length? Like, when did Rosemary's Baby come out? Like, if, if it's if it's been more than a quarter of a century, I feel like I'm able to talk about a film. <laughs> and it's let me let me nerd out with you a little bit. Uh, on that note, uh, there were a few, probably more than a few, classic films ruined for me at the <laughs> the ripe old age of like eleven or twelve. Do you remember? <laughs> It's back when I was a kid, we would call it a CD-ROM. I can't wait to get this CD-ROM to put in this computer, right? You know, Windows 95, all that stuff when, when it was becoming populous to have like a family computer. There was something, a, a program called Cinemania, which is was basically IMDb in disk form. And if, like, uh, you know, or Roger Ebert's, you know, sort of uh, books or maybe Leonard Maltin's like Guide to the Movies for like, you know, I think he did those all the way up to like 2015 or 16, which seems why? a bit much. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I can certainly say there was no Cinemania uh, going all the way up to those years that you'd be like, well, trying to buy the new CD of all the movies that have ever been made in a summary. But they would have little clips, little like audio, not not video. I don't I don't think like for a lot of things, but they'd have audio clips. And there was an audio clip for Rosemary's Baby, and the clip they used was uh, "Satan is his father." And I was just, <laughs> like, you just it would just be like if you just went to Wikipedia and Rosemary's Baby was the title of the page, and then they have a little quote underneath it, and it's like, well, before I even learn what this movie is, you just go ahead and give me the ending. So, uh, yeah, I think that I'm going to say since it was ruined for me at the age of 12 by a goddamn CD-ROM, we can ruin it here in 2021 <laughs> on a podcast. It's tricky because the concept of parody also ruined a lot of films for me. By the time I got around to watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, I had already seen the most famous scenes done on The Simpsons and uh, several other television shows and movies. So for me, it was like... This movie is just a big ripoff of all these TV shows that I've seen. <laughs> so I don't have the fondness for Raiders as I think most other fanatics do. trouble here is Purple Rose of Cairo and Midnight in Paris like while as I'm watching the movie both are kind of like neck and neck it's like, oh my gosh I, like these both both these films are gonna fight for my love of comfort viewing and uh, I think Midnight in Paris wins out because like you mentioned that gut punch at the end is so brutal because you just want to take care of this woman because the horrible Danny Aiello has been mistreating her for God knows how long, and you should finally kind the of beatings catches a break. Will now commence. Not only that, but he he seems like such a lazy wife beater that he tells her you'll <laughs> yeah. get a beating later when I'm not too tired, <laughs> but I'm quite sleepy right now. <laughs> so right, I can't really do it. He doesn't even really fight for her. She's he's pleading for her to stay. She leaves, and he's like, "Well, yeah, you'll be back," and that's kind of it. And so, yeah, uh, when the horrible Danny Aiello and, and the terrible Jeff Daniels reveals his plot, 
it, it's it's really hard for me. And so when I go back and rewatch this film, which I certainly will, there's, there's just so much good in it. I think I'm going to look at those characters very differently. At the very least, Danny Aiello is front and center. He doesn't hide the kind of dick he is. That's exactly how you You're giving some some credit <laughs> to the upfrontness <laughs> of the wife beater. Yes. <laughs> It's the deception. And Jeff Daniels, uh, what a wonderful performance. Actually, multiple performances he's giving because he's got his fictional character. Then he's got the uh, horrible deception that he's creating with his real life self. And I am always astounded by Jeff Daniels. And it's no fault of his own. It's really my problem because I watched Dumb and Dumber and that was my first film with jeff daniels i'm like this guy's a moron and then every subsequent film i see oh he's a proper actor and i'm always a little surprised that's funny you say that um i remember reading that jim carrey really fought for jeff daniels to be in dumb and dumber and the studio wanted to pair carrey with a proper comedian and he Carrie, I, I don't think, I mean, it could be seen as an ego thing. Like, no, 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 I'm the funny one. Bring it, just bring in some actor and uh, <laughs> I'll be funny and they'll be less funny than me, but it'll be fine because I'm the most funny. But he said that he really needed to work with someone who was a trained actor to sort of ground the stupidity of that film into some degree of realism. And I, uh, th this is probably also insulting. I've already attacked Mia Farrow. You've defended Danny. I was the, the proper wife, Peter. <laughs> but I think Jeff Daniels and Dumb Dumber is one of his finer performances because it is a totally thankless part that we've seen many times. This one, not so much. This is a great part. Um, did you read where Michael Keaton shot in this role for 10 days before Whoa, being... Oh, no, I didn't. Tell me about it. Yeah. Alan was a big fan of his, and certainly I think you could see Keaton, uh, especially in this time period, was a uh, you know was a, a rising or one of the top comedic actors in, in film, uh, playing at least the version of the character on the screen, you know, playing sort of a caricature, uh, a type, and um, it basically came down to the looks. Uh, Woody Allen, that that pig, he just said that he thought, and Keaton somewhat agreed. Uh, that he didn't have the look of a movie actor for that time, that he looked too modern. Uh, he looked like a movie okay. actor of the 70s and 80s. And so Keaton stepped aside and said, yeah, fair point. Uh, or at least that's how it's written up. I don't know if he like you know trashed his trailer or threatened to choke Woody Allen or something of that nature. But uh, the, the sad thing is, is that there was supposed to be a makeup film that they collaborated together on. And goodness, Allen, you've produced like... 500 movies since then you couldn't get Keaton in one so but going back to Daniels I think I think he's he's great here because he has to be somewhat disrespected on the screen he's constantly seen as hey this is not your role you are uh basically treated like Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber you're the the goofy guy that we also riff on uh the idiot that we take around the city uh and he's always having to fight for his space and it works so beautifully that he would make that decision in this world where it's apparently shocking, but also not that shocking that a movie character would jump <laughs> off the screen. Like and I love the audience that. in the crowd, uh, you know, you, you have people gasping uh, like you would expect if it happened. But then you have studio heads saying like, we lost another character. What are we going to do with this picture? Like we got to get him back up there. I love it because um, when Daniels comes down, he's not, 
that different. It's that fish out of water thing that we're kind of, especially in rom-coms, we're used to seeing. Um, did you ever see, there was a, is it like Kate and Leopold, uh, where Hugh Jackman, like, sort of travels through time, that sort of thing. Uh, what's the other one with uh, Amy Adams, where she's like the uh, Disney princess in modern times. I'm, I'm going to put the blame Janet? on you. I have no idea. Sorry. I, You're a father I, I, with a daughter now. Thing. So these are things you're going to have to, <laughs> have to <laughs> find right. out soon. It's not a thankless part, but it's also could be one note. He could just be stock goofball fantasy guy, which, you know, to be fair to Midnight in Paris, there's a little bit of that. Uh, you know, Adrian Brody kind of plays. I mean, he only has one scene, so he doesn't have much time to develop a character. But it's like... Mid, if you like Midnight in Paris, I said at the top of this, if you don't like Woody Allen, this is not going to is not gonna set you on the path. Like, oh, Purple Rose of Cairo. But if you like Midnight in Paris, you might like this one more because I think they extrapolate on that idea from the the literary figure side. They get to become more fully formed because it's just, it's just one. It's just Jeff Daniels. And he gets to come into the uh, modern world, in this case, the Great Depression, and develop feelings for this woman. And... God damn it, Alan. Uh, another thing I read was, uh, I don't know if it was a studio head or just a, a friend of his. So I was like, you know, you could actually probably make some money on this if you gave it a happy ending. And he said he, th- th- there basically was no movie with a happy ending. In his mind, I think he, he wrote half the script and put it aside, kind of like the Coen brothers often do. And it wasn't until he got the idea that she would also fall for the real actor who played this character, this weird love triangle of his, and that he would break her heart she would choose the reality and not the fictional version and have her heart broken that he felt like he even had a story to tell thing I actually want to mention is the actual technical aspect of this film. One of the things that Woody Allen has stated that he wants all of his films, no matter which DP he's working with, is he wants the color palette to be a bit warm. And I don't know if that was the right decision for this film, especially the time period. Do you think it would have benefited for it to be in black and white? Mm, that's interesting. Um... Well, you also have – the thing is the film itself that she's watching, right. Purple Rose, is in black and white. So I guess you right. do have you know, that aspect to deal with. But I don't know. I couldn't help but thinking maybe it would have been a little nice. Heck, maybe I'll put the film on and, and turn the color all the way down and just check it out. I mean I, I somewhat agree with you that uh, it's pointed, right? I, th- I think the the real world in this movie is not the most pleasant to look at everything is uh decaying uh in some way like you know they're hanging out this uh amusement park where no one else is you know because because of the setting uh and you're just seeing a lot of sort of empty streets and it's it's a gloomy it's generally a sort of an overcast uh looking um setting and so the black and white you know, maybe if you, God help you, if you did like a sort of a remake, I don't think Woody Allen's ever had one of his films remade, right? And it's probably not going to happen. But he doesn't even like special features on Blu-rays. <laughs> I can't imagine. He better be a damn good uh, 
But doesn't he play like in a jazz band or he used to weekly? Um, I, <laughs> I'm basically saying he should, he better be pretty fucking good at that if he's saying no special features for you. Cause otherwise, <laughs> put down the clarinet, record an audio commentary, get to work. I think the black and white here, you know, exemplifies the sort of the stark simplicity of the world that she wants to be in. That, um, oh, okay, yeah. You know, the, the characters themselves, when, <laughs> and some of my favorite moments are, when she does join them briefly in that world where you have uh, like, you have a, a waiter uh, who's like, so wait, so we're not following the plot anymore. So I can actually like pursue my dreams now. And he does this brief little <laughs> dance number. Like <laughs> um, I think that it's that type of mentality that everything has a proper place and we're not digging too far underneath the surface, which can also be scary. You see something like, uh, Pleasantville, which I think would fit kind of into this category. It doesn't fit on trilogy theory because that's too, that's too easy for us. We can go a different direction. But you know, when those characters into that world in that film, they are turning over every rock and they're sort of confronting the simplicity of the world in a negative fashion. How restrictive it would be to actually live uh, with those very sparse sort of values. Like this is the way things are. But given the world that she's coming from, I think she's just looking for some simple joy. You know, she she brings up many times to her abusive husband. Like, there's one sequence in particular where she's like, you know, it's like neither one of us are happy. Like, clearly you're not happy with me. I have very good reasons not to be happy with you. Uh, don't we both deserve to find something that brings us joy? And the thing I really want to approach with you was do you find do you think alan is attacking people who uh maybe absolve the negative aspects of their life and, and fill that little bit of joy with entertainment in this particular case movies now he's also a big movie buff as well not enough to put on any fucking special features but i i wondered if i you know I've, do i feel like attacked as i'm watching this like am i um ignoring possible real joy I could pursue just by jumping into little two hour bits of happiness with other characters. Did you also feel attacked and shamed by Woody Allen or no? Boy, you know, it, it might just be a subconscious thing, but like, I, I don't want to feel that way because I am <laughs> such an escapist. Like anything, <laughs> anytime something bad happens, I run to the big bang theory. Like that is, <laughs> the most comfort food view and it's the most junk food it's the equivalent of having a tub of ice cream when you're having a bad day it's really what it is uh but that's what i do i i can absolutely see woody allen making that i guess assertion but i don't think that he's hammering us over the head with it because i think he realizes like sometimes that is exactly what you need i mean that's how he makes his bread and butter or used to make his bread and butter so I'd like to think that, yes, he's commenting on it, but I don't think he is lecturing us that it's something that we should not do. I think it's a necessary evil. <laughs> it made me it. feel like I was going through my resume of uh, not professional, but personal accomplishments. So I'm like, well, I'm in a, a happy marriage. Uh, I love my dog. I think he loves me. I mean, he does rely on me to feed him, so maybe <laughs> maybe I've <laughs> acquired that love through his own <laughs> sustenance, but... Uh, uh, I I wondered if I if I wasn't in a good sort of personal situation where I have you know friends that I care about I have these 
uh, weekly, uh, well, almost weekly conversations with you, a little bit behind the curtain. Sometimes we try to do this in one month's shot, but I didn't feel that way, honestly. But I did wonder if that was sort of a, a challenge to, to people to, you know, not ignore uh, the real world sort of applications of, of what you're pursuing in art. Uh, try to apply that to your life. And, you know, the worst part about that is I, th I think that she does. That's that's why she ends up heartbroken is she does attempt to choose reality, but it never, it never feels real either. It's like, it's like she's ignored, um, she's ignored any sort of instincts that she should have based on what she's seen in the movies. And it's like, okay, I'm being swept off my feet by this guy that doesn't really know me. And he's saying all these lovely things uh, and we have a musical interlude in a shop and it's, it's all, it's, it's got that meat cute effect, which is to say, I don't know if the film is pausing that whichever Jeff Daniel, she picks, if it's a valid choice for her. But I, I do think that Alan is, is saying that there may be some, some implications of living your life through, uh, emotional responses that are based in fantasy and trying to apply those in real life. So he punishes Mia Farrow, um, and I started this podcast saying, like, yeah, she's too fragile, and everybody wants to protect her. And then Woody Allen's like, how about we break her heart on film for you? <laughs> <laughs>